So this is Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll read from verses 11 to verse 18. Bible says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, who were Gentiles by, by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached to you who were far away, peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were far who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Well, it's a pleasure to be here and to be able to speak to you again. And uh, we're looking at this next passage in Ephesians. We're making this rather in detail look at these few verses in Ephesians chapter 2. If you haven't been here before, then uh, you can listen again on Anchor, FM, or you can listen on uh, watch and listen on YouTube. Um, uh, you can catch up. That's uh, something that's good, isn't it? But uh, today we get to uh, the penultimate, I think, uh, look at this chapter. We're looking at verses 14 to 18 of this chapter. So if you've got a Bible handy, you're probably good to have that in front of you. Ephesians 2, 2 chapter 4. The, start again. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through to verse 18. And have you been, if you've been before, have you noticed how uh, God's grace and God's mercy have been something that our writer has been speaking about? Paul, the writer of this uh, part of the Bible, he's been writing about. These keep popping up, don't they? Grace and mercy. God's love, we might say, to people like you and me who don't deserve even the tiniest bit of that love. Indeed, we often say that God is love. Of course, all the things we've heard about God's grace and mercy in some of these previous sermons are wonderful, humongous, you might say, uh, demonstrations of the love that God has for humans. Uh, God loved humans so much, as we've just been singing, that he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to die in the place of anyone who comes to him, anyone who repents of all they've done uh, wrong and trusts in him for rescue from hell and from destruction. It's a staggeringly huge and generous love. 
And God paid for that love in his own grief and his own suffering. Again, we've just been singing about that, haven't we? In order to come to the aid of helpless people like you and like me. It's amazing. It's vast. Yet when we say God is love, we mean much more than that. Not only does God love in, way, in ways too marvellous for to get our heads around, we mean that he actually is love. He defines love. There'd be no romance between humans. No respect. No mother looking after her baby. No father planning a birthday party for a son or a daughter. We are the moon to God's son. Take away the sun and we'd have nothing to reflect. Everything would be achingly dark and loveless. All human love is a pale reflection of God's loving nature, of the person that God is. When we say God is love, we are saying that God defines love. All we know of love is because God is at work in this world. And it's why separating ourselves from, God's, uh, from God will slowly but surely cause the death of love in our world and in our own hearts. So when we read here in verse 14, getting back to our passage, that he himself is our peace, that Christ is our peace in verse 14, Paul the writer is pointing out a somewhat similar truth. Peace is Christ's very nature. He doesn't only grant peace, he doesn't only give peace to humans, he is peace. Peace is what Christ is. But Paul is desperate to point out a key feature of this peace. Christ, who is peace, wanted to be our peace. See, he says for himself, he himself is our peace. So committed was Christ in his desire to bring us peace that he pledged to become our peace. And so committed was Christ in his desire to become our peace, verse 15, you see, that he offered his own body to be broken on the cross at Calvary. He offered his own flesh to be violated, torn, ripped and stabbed. He offered his own blood to be poured out on a Middle Eastern hill. His life was sucked out of him. He offered up his eternal relationship with his father, which had been eternally there of love and light. He accepted separation from his father in immense anguish and darkness of soul. He was willing to be shattered by the ultimate attack on peace so that we could have peace. Not just now, but in eternity. Peaceful relationships with other humans on earth, peace with God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit forever. He committed himself, we might say, 110% to achieve this and much more by being our peace. It's no wonder, is it, that in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, the Bible gives him the title, Prince of Peace. So it is that all true peace is centred on Christ our Saviour, who has purchased our peace by his own death, becoming grace, sorry, becoming peace for his own people, 
in whom he lives by the work of his Holy Spirit. It's a trite little saying, but so true, and I think it's going to come up on the slide. No Christ, no peace. No Christ, no peace. Depending on how you spell it. You can even get a t-shirt, apparently, with this on. That's where I stole it from. Because he is peace personified. And as we centre ourselves on Christ, he becomes our peace. Even when you are having the most difficult time in your life imaginable, Jesus Christ can give us peace because he is peace. Indeed, he promises to keep those in perfect peace whose minds are fixed on him as they trust him. So first of all, Christ is peace. But secondly, Christ brings peace with God. Christ brings peace with God. Now, it's not uncommon to hear stories of people who suddenly found themselves in some kind of difficulty, who prayed for, to God for help, um, and then blamed God for not responding. Or people who've never had much time for God, faced with a disaster, they're heard to say, how can there be a God if he let that happen? I'm sure you've heard some people say things like that. But I wonder, what did they expect? What do you expect? If we live our lives keeping God at arm's length, we're more or less saying to God, don't tell me how to live my life. I'm in charge of my life, thank you. We're declaring that I am more of a God in my life than God is. And all of us, you and me, are like this by nature. By nature, we're God's enemies. And frankly, our days are numbered. And if we've wound up as enemies of God, communicating with God is going to be difficult. We need to make our peace with him. And how can we do that? Well, much like a criminal who becomes an enemy of the law, who breaks the law, two things are required. Confession and payment. Confession gets the criminal to the door of the court. It was me, Gov. But that doesn't solve the problem, does it? It's the start, admitting our guilt. It doesn't bring harmony between the guilty person and the law. For that, the guilt has to be measured. A sentence must be imposed, and payment, maybe a fine, maybe even a prison sentence, must be made. And only when the debt of the law has been paid off can the criminal be turned an ex-con. Only then will the rap sheet be clear. What's on your rap sheet this morning? In that time of prayer that Rob led us through, he asked us to think about that, didn't he? And to bring our confessions to God. Don't pretend you haven't got a rap sheet. You may be good at hiding it from others. You may think you're good at hiding it from God. You may even have been fairly successful at hiding it from yourself. But God, the all-knowing, sees every entry in your list of spiritual crimes. And you and I need to confess to God all of them. 
we must acknowledge that we are by very nature, as well as by practice, enemies of God. Pleading guilty is a start to retrieving peace with God. But what about the sentence that the judge has declared? God set a penalty for each rebellion against him. And if that penalty isn't paid somehow, we shall be called to pay it with our lives. Death, destruction and hell stand looming in front of each one of us unless we have our penalty dealt with. We desperately need that penalty to be removed. We need it sorted out. That criminal record that God holds in front of him needs to be wiped clean. Only then can we be part of God's family, his nation, as he intends us to be. And even if you are a Christian this morning, if you've confessed and trusted in Christ for eternal peace with God, for your slate to be erased, then I'm sure that the tendency uh, to challenge God's authority hasn't totally evaporated in your life, for it hasn't evaporated in mine. Every day, in one way or another, at least one thought or one behaviour will demonstrate that we can still treat God as our enemy. Push off God, you're not welcome. How many times does a thought like that go through your head? And I most, and most days, I guess, it's many t more, t more times than once. Each day we've got to return again in confession. Each day we need peace with God. And that's where our passage comes in. Last week, John spoke about the rabid prejudice and scorn that the Jews had towards the non-Jews, known as Gentiles. There was no love lost between them. They despised each other. Yet we read in verses 15 and 16 that Jesus Christ is reconciling people of both types to God through the cross. The message to us, whether despised by others or a despiser of others or neither despised nor a despiser, whoever we are, is that we need to be reconciled to God. And amazingly, it is Jesus Christ in his own person who can provide that reconciliation, that peace. When Christ takes God's sentence for our criminal enmity with him, uh, then our spiritual criminal record is completely cleared. We're no longer enemies of God. Christ has provided the peace with God we so much need. And we can communicate with God, the God most high, the God most holy, by the Holy Spirit, which he provides, as you'll see in verse 18. We can enter God's presence and know we're no longer enemies, but those who can enter God's throne room as of right. We're free to make our requests to God. We're free to share our concerns with him. We're free to express our admiration of him, of his character and his person. If we've come to Jesus Christ repenting of all we've done and are trusting him for our slate to be clean, then we're at peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in his own person on the cross. It's an amazing truth. It's why this church is here and I trust it's why you're here this morning.
Well, thirdly in this passage, I want you to see that Christ is inclusive. Christ is inclusive. In our our world today, in our nation, the word inclusivity appears everywhere. Employers have to be inclusive so that people having a disability have an equal chance of getting a job as an able-bodied person. Cosmetics must be inclusive of all skin colours. Some businesses have been taken to court for not being inclusive of customers with uh, all sexual orientations. Authors and website developers must use inclusive language so that they don't offend their readers. More generally, according to the dictionary, inclusivity is the practice of including those people within a larger group of people who might otherwise be excluded or marginalised, especially members of minorities. And the passage in front of us tells us that this is nothing new. The passage proudly proclaims that Christ is inclusive. Now, in the Greco-Roman, I've did a little bit of research here and dug out some learned paper which was given at Yale in 2005. Uh, If you want the reference, I can give it to you afterwards. In the Greco-Roman world of the first century, there was immense division. Social rank and elitism, however you say that word, uh, elitism, was deeply embedded. Slavery was rife. No amount of hard work could liberate you if you were a slave. Those at the top of the pile lorded it over those at the bottom. Those at the top could even put to death those at the bottom of the pile without really any risk of censure. There are certainly records of masters flogging their slaves until they killed them. And they didn't pay any penalty. Yet, the Roman hierarchy, these very people at the top, they feared that their empire empire would be contaminated by the inferior people that they conquered. So they tried to minimise their contact with the people that they uh, got in touch with. In their racist minds, mixed blood relationships were bound to lead to inferior humans. So they certainly didn't marry any of them. And it wasn't just the Romans. As we learnt last week, the Jews treated non-Jews with tremendous disdain. Jews believed that they had God on their side by right of their race, so that non-Jews were excluded from having any blessings from God. Gentiles, they thought, were spiritual runts in this life and literally hopeless regarding the hereafter. But Paul is not going to tolerate any of those attitudes in the church. Christ, he says in verses 15 and 16, is making a united body of believers from both Jews and from non-Jews. Both need to be at peace with God, and Christ is bringing that peace about in the same way for both of them, by his death in their place on the cross at Calvary. And verse 17 tells us that Christ has brought a message of peace with God to both Jews, who had a historical connection with God, and to the non-Jews, who'd been in ignorance of God. 
If you were to look in the Bible book of 2 Corinthians, you'd find Paul writing there that everyone who trusts God for their salvation is a new creation. Jews wouldn't be turned into Gentiles, nor would non-Jews be turned into Jews. No, God is transforming both of them into something different, into a new humanity, as it says in verse 15. Much greater than either had been in this past. Alive in Christ. Recreated for, for something much better and to be much better. The message of our passage, the message of our church, the message of the church in general, the message of Jesus Christ is one of inclusivity. The way to get peace with God applies to all, regardless of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, age, language, culture, class, mental ability, physical ability, country of origin, immigration status, and anything else you want to list. Paul, when writing to the church, uh, the writer of our passage here, but when he was writing to a different church in the province of Galatia, he said, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for in Christ Jesus, you are all one. Of course, I'm not as naive as to think that racism, ageism, sexism and many other isms aren't found in the church today. Even though this passage makes it very plain that that should not be the case. And if you've become a Christian, it's very doubtful that you have lost all your prejudices overnight. I'm sure I haven't lost all mine. And even if you had, we live in a world still with much prejudice in it, bias, bigotry and preconception. So it won't be surprised if you're picking up some of those uh, today. Without, maybe without noticing. So we really always got to be on our guard to eradicate these in our own hearts. Help brothers and sisters to do the same. Christ sacrificed his own body on the cross so that he could create in himself a new body out of both our, those we may view as in and those we may view as out. Christ is the actively inclusive one and every Christian ought to be running to catch up with Christ's inclusivity but if Christ is inclusive I also want to say that Christ is exclusive in some ways there's an exclusivity in Christ that we mustn't overlook after all Jesus Christ is the only way to get peace with God because he is peace. It's through, through Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ that anyone can can have that anyone can have access to the Father, as you'll see in verse 18. No Christian should tolerate a message that says it's possible to gain peace in any other way. Our world shouts us us that you can get fulfilment and peace by doing all sorts of things. The adverts on your TV tell you that only, if you only have X, whatever it happens to be, you'll have peace. You'll have happiness. We cannot tolerate this, brothers and sisters. 
there is only one source of peace, the person who is peace, Jesus Christ. It's not loving to anyone else to say that their religion is okay if in reality it cuts them off from the God of peace. And it is this exclusivity which sooner or later will upset somebody in our society. For example, when we say that some expressions of race shouldn't be tolerated because they are against Christ's standards, we're probably going to get support from those outside the church. For example, our passage this morning has shown us clearly that we're all stand equally needy before God. There can be no Aryan superiority. And you will find few who will disagree with a Christian who rejects the vile ideology of the Nazis. We will be in tune with most people in our society when we are intolerant of such a thing. But you may not have such an easy time when you say that some expressions of gender are against Christ's standards. Our Saviour demands that we behave modestly and respectfully to others. There's no room for the macho male or the female vamp. And many features of our society are against Christ's standards. No Christian should support dressing as a devil at Halloween. Yet if you question such things, if you voice such things, you may, you may well find yourself accused of intolerance or bigotry. As those who have come to recognise in a small way God's amazing creativity, we ought to marvel at the infinite variety that God has made in this world and in particular the diversity he's made amongst the humans he's put in this world. That's biblical inclusivity. But it's only a small step from there to, to emphasise the differences so that one variety of humanity becomes promoted more than another. And in our nation, I very much fear that in its rush to show its tolerance and inclusivity, society is overshot to the extent that it frequently praises that which is hurtful and unloving and it's unwilling to criti be critical of even that which is obviously selfish and destructive of society. You watch some of those programmes that uh, come up on our TVs. And if you were to criticise those, you may well be charged with being intolerant. In many areas, it seems to have become intolerant of those who challenge its tolerance. But the message of exclusivity contained in our passage cuts really right across that. It's urgent that everyone makes their peace with God by the person of Jesus Christ. No one else will do. And this means being intolerant of everything that gets in the way of myself and others from making our peace with God. And lastly this morning... I want to point out that Christ brings peace between people. We've seen that cropping up already, but let me just spell that out. Because Jesus Christ 
is peace with God for the in-group as well as for the out-group, whoever they may be, in whichever society you're looking at, whichever group of people you're looking at. Therefore, Christ provides peace between peoples. See what 14, verse 14 says. Christ has made the two groups one. He's destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between them. And in verse 18, he's put to death their hostility. The in-group amongst Paul's readers were Jews and the out-group uh, in those days were non-Jews, the Gentiles. Today, the in-group and the out-group will not be those groups, I think, but will be very different. And they'll be different in different places, in different circumstances and at different times. But God is still in the business of killing off hostility between people by uniting them in Christ. There's large dimension hostility in our world, isn't there, between men and women or between black and white. There can be more local hostilities, even, for example, between those who favour COVID restrictions and those who don't. And you'll know of animosity in families between competing brothers or sisters. Hostilities may fester for centuries, like those in Ireland and the Balkans, or they may flare up suddenly, like when you're cut up in your car by another driver. But just like I said at the start, that all love comes from God, so something true is similar, is true about hostility. All hostility is a reflection of our, his hostility to God, ultimately. If we're hostile to God, we won't appreciate what he has made, we won't appreciate whom he has made, and therefore we won't be willing to accept them the message of this chapter emphasises that amongst those who come to God through Jesus Christ, there can't any longer be outs or ins. Who are the people uh, that you see as in? Those people you think are okay, those people you accept. And who do you see as out? Those people you don't accept. Those people you look down on. Which group of people do you write off as unreasonable? undesirable because God looks on those people as sheep without a shepherd are you and I going to change our viewpoint so that it's more like our saviours that person in your family or at work who annoys you who you find to be hurtful rude and scheming are they at peace with God do they need to meet Jesus and discover the prince of peace Will you and I call on God to reconcile them to himself in the death and resurrection of Jesus? Because Christ is the only way to get peace with God, therefore his peace applies to all types of humanity. I've talked about already, haven't I, regardless of race, ethnicity, all these things and so on. Christ's self-sacrifice has made a peace between his people and God that no one else could achieve. His selfless act was and is needed equally and completely by all types of people. Those you think as in, those you think as out. Do you sometimes think that would be a nice person to have in our church? I hope they don't come to our church. 
This is not God's attitude, is it? The message of the Bible, the message of Jesus Christ, is rather like the message of the lifeboat crew. There's the sinking boat. The lifeboat is coming across the waves and the guy's going out his loud hailer or megaphone or whatever it is. And he says, you're all in the same boat and it's sinking fast. It doesn't matter whether you're black or white, young, old, male, female, gay, straight, rich, poor, stupid or intelligent. You're all going to drown the same unless you get in my lifeboat. And in the same way, in God's eyes, whether some people view you or me as members of an in-group or an out-group, even whether we're tempted to view ourselves in this kind of way, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether we view other people as in an in-group or an out-group. God sees only two types of people in front of him. Those who are in Christ, who are at peace with God, and those who remain outside of Christ and are still his enemies. And when you and I come to realise that every Christian was once in the same sinking death ship and now is the same lifeboat, having been rescued by the same Saviour, and that that rescue was only because of his grace and his mercy. If you want to think about that again, go back to verse 8 of this chapter when we thought it was nothing to do with us. It was to do with God's mercy in rescuing us then we can see that there's no reason at all to think that I'm superior or indeed inferior to any other Christian. There's no reason to think that anybody else is inferior or superior. There is absolutely no reason for any animosity between humans. God in Christ is recreating each one he has brought into his family. And we're all works at progress. Every Christian is a work in progress. And we must see ourselves as God sees us. You know, it's the hostility to God that is at the root of all hostility between humans. If I think I'm more important, better than God, then I'm certainly going to think I'm more important than other humans. And the stage of my heart is all set for animosity against them. Hatred and intolerance to others in the very situations where God has designed there to be love, understanding and appreciation of one another. So there should be no argument between Christian brothers and sisters who are both centred on Christ. Because that would be like having Christ falling out with Christ. Any animosity in this church, or indeed in any other church, is because we've drifted away from Christ, who is our peace. So huge is Christ's peace that it swamps out conflict and enmity. In fact, you could say that reconciliation to God, one person at a time, is God's recipe for world peace. Look around you at the other people in this building this morning. I'm sorry for those of you online. Um, you can't have the privilege of looking around and seeing this motley crew here. Be at peace with one another. 
because of the life-changing work of our Saviour, the Prince of Peace, who is our peace, who's making one new humanity out of us. And if you're outside of Christ this morning, if you haven't yet discovered peace with Christ, then don't remain an enemy of God any longer. Come to Jesus Christ, who has purchased peace with God for you and for today, tomorrow and forever.